Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Ian. I am the pastor here at Ecclesia, and we're so grateful that you have joined us as we continue to emerge from the long winter of the academic break. So we're so grateful that you're here. Uh, we've been walking through this book called First Peter. And it, it's a book that if you were to ask people, what is, what is your favorite book in the Bible? It's usually not very high on the list, but as I look at it and I see what was going on in the audience of Peter's, the audience that Peter was writing to, what was going on in their world and what, what is transpiring in our own, I think it's one of the most important books in the Bible for us in this moment. And so we've been slowly making our way. Ryan led us last week and did a beautiful job. We just have such great people. Um, it's so great for me to be able to take a week off and for the teaching to still be really strong. And uh, that's been consistent throughout. And so I'm so grateful uh, for Ryan, so grateful that we are continuing in our walk through First Peter today. And so I just want to start with a question. Where does God live Where does he make his home? Because you know, for us, throughout the history of human culture, we've sort of had different answers for this. You know, one example is the ancients. Oh, do you, do you have an answer? Yeah, this is good. Mount Zion, perhaps. This is kind of the ancient perspective, right? The Greeks had the sense that God lived, the gods lived on Olympus, that they were present somewhere else. And as we go throughout human history, what we see is that we've come up with answers to this question. So, for, for instance, some people have answered that God is far off, that he is somewhere else, that he sort of wound the world up and set it off into motion. This is what we came to know as deism. 
Essentially that God, there is a God, he is powerful, but he's not that interested in what's going on. For others, they have answered that God is hidden. That You have to keep accumulating knowledge and secrets and mysteries in order to know God. And throughout the course of human history, this has taken on different facets, but it's essentially Gnosticism. That we have to know the secret about God, that we have to keep plumbing the depths in order to figure out where God is hiding and how we might know him. For others in our culture, and this is very common in our age, God is everywhere. God is in the breeze. God is, is present in um, it, like the birds and in the ground. This is called pantheism, that God is sort of exists in every space. And the question, where does God live, may seem like one of those, like, is this one of those annoying philosophical questions? Like, can God make a stone that he can't lift? And if he can't, then can he do everything? It may seem like one of those questions, but actually, throughout the narrative of Scripture, the location, the real estate of God is seen not as some secondary matter, but as primary. And what we see throughout the narrative of Scripture, as the whole story unfolds, and you could almost summarize the whole Bible in this one sense, that God's location, where God lives, where he desires to be, is with us. And so God makes the world, he creates, by speaking the world into existence, his very words create the world. And then what does he do? He doesn't withdraw But he puts the man and eventually the woman that he creates in a garden where he walks in the cool of the evening. We see this as the story transpires. We fast forward to the Exodus. When God liberates the people of Israel after 400 years of slavery, what they see as they wander through the wilderness is is God manifest. We see his presence manifesting itself in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is drawing near to us. Where does God live? The Bible would say that God is trying to live in our midst, trying to live where we are. And in that Exodus narrative, the first response of the people, as they're wandering through the wilderness, they know that God's presence is with them, and they want to create a space where they can meet with God. And so in Exodus 33, verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. As one speaks to a friend. Don't miss, these are not ancillary details. This is at the heart of who God is. He's wanting to draw near. He's wanting to be present where we are. And the tent of meeting was the first kind of physical manifestation of this idea of a temple. As we fast forward to the days of David and Solomon, they have this desire to build a house where God can reside. I'm not sure they completely grasp the point because I think God, when he shows himself up in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, is basically saying, I want to come to you. I will be where you are no matter what's going on. We have this tendency to want to put God in his place. We have this tendency to want to put God in a box. 
And I think their motivations for building a temple as they saw the nations around them and they saw that their gods had these amazing temples devoted to them. They said, our God's amazing. He should have a house like that. And so the impulse and the response was to build God a temple. And the temple in ancient Israel was the place that, that showed what creation was like when God had ordered everything in the way that it, he had intended. It showed the world as it should be under the shalom and the reign of God. But the, but the temple that was dedicated to the God of Israel was not the only temple Many of you have traveled to ancient cultures and where they have their holy sites and they have the ruins of these temples devoted to different gods and goddesses. And so for the ancients, the temple was the place where you went to worship God. And, and, and the content of that worship, what you did at the temple, said a lot about what that God cared about. Throughout human cultures, we've seen that there are gods that, that desire everything from simple sacrifices to, to desiring that we would uh, form ourselves in, in, in things like temple prostitution and sacrificing children. There's a wide range as you look at the cultures of the world. But all of these have this in common, that the temple was the place where you went to meet with God, where you went to worship God and where you encountered the priests and in our passage today, Peter's going to merge some of these pictures together. Peter's going to merge this idea of a temple and this idea of a priesthood. You know, typically a temple is a place, is a location, and a priesthood is a people. And what Peter's going to begin to do is to show how in light of what Jesus has done, that these things converge into our lives today. And so where does God live Peter's going to make the stunning argument that perhaps God not only wants to live with you, not only to be in your midst, but to live in and through you. He says in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let yourselves, he says, be built into a spiritual house house. Peter's saying that the place that God wants to reside is in your very heart, that we're to be a temple of the living God. And as we'll see today, we are not just to be a temple. You see, temples are stationary places where people have to go. We're not just temples that are set in one place. We are sent out temples. We are temples with a task. And the question that Peter is going to begin to ask us as we look in the scriptures today is whose temple are we building? Whose temple do we spend the hours and the moments of our lives building? And I want to address this because you know one of the things I love about being in Princeton is you guys are amazing. Like I talk to you about what you're studying or what you're doing with your life and I often cannot comprehend. Like I have to be so careful anytime I use an analogy, there's an expert sitting in our pews and I'm like, I think it's like this. A couple of months ago, I used a, an example from the water cycle and then I saw Gabriel sitting there who's a climate scientist and brilliant. And I was like, Gabriel, was that, was that mostly right? And he was like, uh, mostly. I was like, thank you, bless you, you're kind. 
I don't ever reference the Greek because Bryson is sitting here and is literally a Greek scholar. So if you want to know what the Greek says, ask Bryson. My two years of divinity school Greek, turns out, don't hold a candle. But I love this because so many people in this culture, like you, there are easier places to live. Like I'm from Oklahoma. It just doesn't cost as much. I, I can't, I'll never forget when Courtney and I first moved here, we saw the prices for rent. And like literally I'm sitting there, it's like, is, it, is that for a year? Like that, that's a month? What are we talking about here? We had to move to Pennsylvania just to afford the place. And guys, there's not much worse than living in Pennsylvania. I've spoken. But friends, the thing I love about being in this space is there is a sense of ambition. And now often when we talk about ambition in the church, we do so in kind of an underhanded way. We do, we do so in a way that undermines this kind of this drive and this push. And, and what I want to do today is I want to I probe into the source of your ambition. Whose temple are you trying to build? But I also want to kindle that fire. Because I think that God has placed a godly and holy ambition in you. That yes, it's about what you can do in the world. It's about the gifts that he's given you. But so much more, it's about cultivating a life that invites God to come, and as Peter says, to, to let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. And so today I want to see how Peter kind of outlines this as we look at the text. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He says, For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. So Peter is going to use this imagery of a stone. And I often think for Peter how, how meaningful of an image this must have been. You see, Peter wasn't always called Peter. Now, there was a moment in, we, we see recorded in the Gospels where Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, and he's asking his closest friends, among whom which Peter was one of them. He says, who do people say that I am? And they kind of answer, and then Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, no longer will you be called Cephas, which was his given name. Now you'll be called Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, much has been made of Peter as sort of the, the foundation, the, the, the first pope and all that. I don't really think that's what Jesus was saying, is that there will be this line and that Peter will be the first of that. I think what, what Jesus is saying is that upon your confession that I am the Messiah, I will build my church. And Jesus says that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. But Peter is outlining this, this image of a stone and he says to those who receive this stone, it becomes a lens and a cornerstone, the very foundation of your life. It makes all of it fit together and make sense. But he also says, and he's, Peter's writing to a culture that, that for those who would have heard the message about Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus was a Jewish man who was crucified outside of Jerusalem. 
He was crucified under Roman rule. From all appearances in Peter's society, Jesus was an absolute failure. For these people to proclaim that Jesus was Lord of all the earth was almost laughable. I mean, there's an inscription from the third century that that shows a crucified individual with a donkey head. And the caption says, Alexamenos worships his God. Like the idea that this this Jewish man who was crucified in this kind of no-name place was somehow Lord of all the earth was a joke. And so that's what Peter is saying. He's talking to these people who have identified their lives. They've said, this is true. Somehow, some way, the, the notion that Jesus died for us, for our sins, and that, that not only makes us right with God, but it establishes his kingdom on earth right here and now, somehow that's true. And Peter is painting this image And he's saying there's a stone, and it is a divergence. It is two paths that go different ways. And one of the hard things for us about seeing the beauty and the truth of what Jesus says is that stone, if we we receive it, if we come to it, as Peter says, the living stone, and allow it to give shape to everything else in our lives, that stone is life and beauty. But if we reject it, it is, as Peter says, a stumbling block. And the first way that we sort of stumble upon this stone is that to follow Jesus is to go counter to the culture, counter to the flow of the world as it sort of sets off on its own way. The perspective of Jesus' death in the first century is not unlike the perspective of Jesus' death in our own world. You see, for, for the people that Peter is writing to, they knew what crucifixion was. They knew what it meant. We, we are a little distant from that. But the idea today that we worship a man who walked the earth, who was actually the son of God, who was crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day was resurrected, is no less suspicious in our own day. And to follow Jesus is to go against the culture. I just want to list out a couple of the things that are present in our culture today in ways that we as the people of God live differently. Not with closed minds, not with blind faith, but differently. Jonah, you can put that slide up just with a couple of... So the first one is relativism. It just says we're the authors of truth. That we get to make it up as we go. And friends, I I hope as you hear me describing this, this is not me saying that's the world out there. These are the temptations and the forces that press upon us as the church. And as we buy into them, as we buy into the lies of the culture, these things become a stone that we stumble upon. The second is materialism. We are the masters of nature through our technology. We can make anything happen, and we dictate what's possible. The next one is just a primary and core challenge of what it means to be a Christian in America, consumerism, that life is to be used for our own ends and pleasures, that the world is ours to sort of use up and take The next one we see so prominent in the church, elitism, racism. Some people are more valuable because of where they were born or because what they look like. This is a prominent and pressing reality in our time. And the last one is individualism. We think that we truly can do whatever we want as long as we don't hurt anybody. But what we find is the goalposts on that definition are always moving. And for us as the people of God, 
We reject these ways as ways of freedom, and we see that Jesus invites us to his life to run counter to the culture as it spirals downward. And so you see how how these things can begin to become a stone that diverges on different paths. You see, if we accept that Jesus is the cornerstone and we build our lives upon him, then that's going to turn the world upside down. Jesus stands on a mountain, and he says, blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We begin to see the world right side up. We begin to loose ourselves from the ways of our upside down world. We begin to live as the people of God. And for those who come to him a living stone, our lives begin to have coherence and congruence and hope. And so the first way that it's hard as we encounter this stone, as Peter talks about a stone that can be, can be life or it can be stumbling, is we live counter to the culture. The second way is what Peter's describing here. He says, let yourselves be made into a house. Friends, I know you guys. So many of you are not passive participants. You want to take control. You want to be active. You want to you chart out your own path. And what Peter is saying here is that there is a first order of business. Let God with his grace come in and begin to do some renovation on our hearts. He says, let yourselves be built into a house. And the the passive voice here for us oftentimes is a little bit off-putting, but it's actually quite beautiful. Because Jesus doesn't want to just be near us. He wants to come, come near to us and transform our lives. And we have to uh, take the time and the patience and allow God to do his slow work. Now, if you've ever watched one of those home improvement shows, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines, there's other ones, but I don't know who they are. You know what I've never seen, which I would love, is if they just like, they, you know, come up upon this dilapidated house and they just paint the house and they're like, it's good. We just freshened the thing up a little bit. Like, they never do that, right? There's never just this superficial thing that they're, they're trying to uh, renew. They always do this deep work. They go into the bones of the house. They gut the house. And what I want to suggest to you today is that this invitation of Peter's to let yourselves be built into a spiritual house is a call to this kind of deep, sometimes painful, transformative work. God wants to renovate your life. He wants to build your life into a temple of his presence, a beautiful home where he comes and he makes his dwelling. But in order to do that, he's going to have to break down some walls. He's going to have to do some plumbing and some painting and some excavating. He might even have to take a jackhammer to the foundation. And friends, today, as Peter invites us, to be a living temple of the living God. Perhaps he's inviting us to see the way that we've just done this superficial work. You know, there's stuff like when you come into the church, like you know you can't get away with anymore, so you just kind of push that down. But it's like how many of us have let God go to the source of those disordered desires, of those disordered things that we want people to think of us and let him do real work in our lives. And this is what Peter's inviting us to today. 
First of all, he says, come to a living stone. And then he, he gives us a little bit of an image of how to do that. So I'm going to use the, the home renovation imagery because, you know, in my off time, I just build things. It's what I do. Just, just handy. I walk around the house with one of those belts with the hammer. It's just who I am. Just a tough guy. I have to shave my beard twice a day. It's, it's really tough. I'm going to use this imagery because I think that's the invitation that Peter gives to us. And he says in verse 1, he says, Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile and insincerity and envy and all slander. What Peter is pointing to is this is the operating system of our world. Competition. Trying to get ours and, you know, whatever happens to everybody else, Whatever. And notice, all of these things involve the way that we treat others. Malice is literally ill will towards others. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel. It's never this isolated thing, you and Jesus, and trying to figure it out. It, is, it infuses its way into the way that you live in the world, and it always involves the way that you treat others. So Peter says, get rid of these things. These will not serve you. As we've talked about this series that we are a pilgrim people, that we are people on a journey, making our home in this world, yes, but knowing that we have a home that awaits for us, growing deeper into the world and serving it and loving it more thoroughly, but also becoming less uh, transformed by it, instead becoming transformed by Jesus. And Peter says, this will not serve you in the kingdom of God. Guile and insincerity, putting on a face for others. This works itself out in all sorts of ways. Perfectionism. Or you live a false life in front of other people. Envy. Wanting what others have. Looking at other people and saying, oh, if my life were like that, I'd, I'd, I'd be fine. Slander. God spoke the world into existence with his very word. And how often do we tear other people down? Never when they're around. With our words. We use our imagination. We use the power that God has given us to break the foundations of other people. And Peter says, you have to demo this foundation. And friends, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. All I have to do is pose the question, is, is this in you? Because Peter's saying, you are called to cultivate and, and to let yourself be transformed into a house where God can come and dwell. And he says, rid yourselves of this. This doesn't fit in the house. It doesn't look good. Marie Kondo, that stuff, is not sparking joy in anybody's life. Get rid of it. And the notion here, friends, is not that you're going to walk out of here thinking like, okay, I'm not going to be envious anymore. That's where the passive voice and Peter's encouragement, let yourselves be built into a house. That's where this synergy takes place. There's always this mysterious thing that God is doing. He does the work. He does the transformation, but he brings us along into it. And so, friends, I just invite you to take inventory. Where, where are these things showing up in your life? Where are they buried deep in your heart? Would you just let God take his gracious jackhammer to that and just dig it up? Because it will not serve you. It will not serve anyone else. Demo the old foundation. And then Peter gives us, because this is what the Bible does. It doesn't just say, you know, this sense that the scriptures are these lists of do nots and stay away from that. 
is so far from the beauty of what we see here. Peter says there's something better. Get rid of this and take this on. He says like in verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure and spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, rid yourselves of all these things. And here's what, what should you do in lieu of all these things that have now escaped your life? Long for God's presence. Long for God to come near. Say yes and amen to his desire to draw near to your heart. And here's the beauty, friends. There's no house that God looks at and he's like, well, that one is not salvageable. There's no life that he looks at and he says, I, you know, I can't really do anything with that. The beauty of God, who God is, he's a master renovator. He can do work and, and excavate anything in our lives. And he says, all you have to do is to long for him. All you have to do is respond to him. And so Peter begins to paint this image of how we can come to this stone, this living stone. And then he goes on in chapter uh, 2, in verse 9, he says, But you, though you've been rejected by your society, the people that Peter's writing to have been ostracized for their faith. Literally, their livelihoods are at stake. He says, Though you have been rejected, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A chosen race. Friends, the gospel itself creates nothing short of a new humanity. He says, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Our DNA, fundamentally, is God's mercy. A new humanity, a chosen race. The vision of the New Testament for the church is a people from every tongue and tribe and nation, as Revelation 7 says. And, and as we are here in this sort of Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, as we commemorate him, we, we sort of are, we reflect and we lament how often the church in America has not lived into this as an idea. Every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, that's a vision of the new kingdom as when God comes again. And what it's saying is that we will take our ethnicity into the new world. And so, friends, Jesus is, is given his life in order that there might be a new race, a new people, formed from the midst and the mosaic beauty of our world. And we remember today how often we have to confess as the church that we have not lived into God's ideal of a people formed across of ethnic backgrounds, formed across socioeconomic boundaries. And Peter says that we are a chosen race, a new humanity, that we are a royal priesthood. Like, I... This is not an upwardly mobile society. Like it's been true in this society, in our own, for all of time, that you cannot choose to be a part of the royal family. I guess you, you can choose to not be a part of it, but that's inside. Peter says to the people that you are royal. You're not just chosen. You're not just adopted. You are literally of the lineage of the king. 
And he says, you're a priesthood. And it just in, in Peter's society, you couldn't choose to be a part of the priesthood. You were born into the Levites or you weren't. And what Peter is saying is that you, as you've been built into a house, a spiritual dwelling place for God, it's not only so God might make this nice and peaceful life for you. You have a task. We are temples of the living God. We are like living stones being built up into a place that honors and worships him. But we are temples that go into the world to do as Peter says, to proclaim the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And friends, as we let ourselves be built into this spiritual house, we let God do his beautiful demolition of all of our small idolatries, all the slander and the malice and the envy, all the things that will not serve us, so that, so that we can know ourselves in light of who God is, and we can go into every corner of the world and proclaim the mighty acts of the one who called us out of darkness. And you know, the thing I love here is the old model of the temple— was to try to get people to come here, to come and see. But what Peter's vision is, is not a people coming to one single place. It is a people sent out, not just a priest. Like your job in this world of evangelism is not to introduce people to me so I can somehow tell them a little bit about Christian theology. No, your job is to go into every corner to the places where you walk, living as a spiritual house built into abundance and livelihood by God himself. Jesus is wanting to work through your life to shine light in the darkness. And this is where we get back to our sense of ambition. You see, if our ambition is to build a temple to ourselves... If our ambition is to build up our own lives of security and comfort and recognition, then yes, it's idolatrous and small. And it will not have anything to do with the world that is to come. But if our ambition is to glorify God, if our ambition is to live as living temples in the world, then that sense that you have for achievement, that sense that you have that you want to be great in your field, perhaps as God saying that you are a, a royal priesthood sent out into all the world. That as we, we train and we study to be things like professors and lawyers and teachers and writers, that perhaps God is, is saying to you that that, that um, job is secondary to your vocation. Your vocation is to be a priesthood. Your vocation is to let your lives be built up into a spiritual household. And friends, I know for some of you in here today, you feel underemployed. You feel like life in some ways has, has missed you. Can I just say that Peter's letter was written to a people who weren't upwardly mobile? They couldn't aspire to be great. In many ways, they were ostracized and shamed because of their commitment to Jesus. Whatever your job is, it is secondary to your vocation. A vocation is a calling. You have been called to Jesus himself, and you have been called to be a priesthood who proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. And friends, as pastor of this church, I'm honored, honored to share my calling, honored to, to be able to, to lead you in the scriptures. But I want to encourage you to cultivate a holy ambition, an ambition that what Peter says, this is the first thing that you long for, long for God. 
Like a baby longs for his mother's milk, long for God. Like babies have one ambition, and they will make it known until that is satisfied. And for us as the people of God, our primary response, our primary call is to God himself, to long for him more than anything else. But as we do that, as we're formed as people in his image, as we're formed as this chosen race, as a priesthood who is royal, as we're formed in these places, then we go as a priesthood into every corner of the world, wanting to see what God might do. Because we have brought the presence of the very living God into that space. God wants to be with you, and he also wants to be with your coworkers and your classmates. He longs for them to know who they are, sons and daughters. They also are a chosen people. But unless the people of God will say, I'm going to cultivate a life that lives as a spiritual house, who's going to tell them? Friends, we have to begin to long for the things that God longs for. As we long for him, we begin to long for his beautiful heart. James James K. Smith says this of holy ambition. He says, resting in the love of God, desiring God above all else, doesn't squelch your ambition. It fuels it with a different fire. I don't have to strive to get God to love me, rather because God loves me unconditionally. I'm free to take risks and launch out into the deep and plant churches. I'm released to aspire to use my gifts in gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. When you've been found, you're free to fail. And friends, this morning, Peter's invitation to us is twofold. He says, you're a priesthood a royal chosen people. God didn't have a plan B. When he wanted to show the world who he is, the beauty of his sacrificial love, he didn't appear in the clouds and say, hello everyone, I'm God. He sent you into Nancy's office space. He sent you into Professor Marx's classroom. Clearly teaches history. And I wonder, friends, if you would just see the words of Peter spoken over you, if you'd hear the words of Jesus spoken over you, you are royal, you are a priesthood, you are chosen. You are a temple with a task. The second thing, and this is where I just want to bring this home this morning. Friends, for some of you, either secretly or very knowingly, you believe the lie that God couldn't do anything with the house of your life that you've had somehow soiled the place so much or it's so broken down and dilapidated that God, the master renovator, the one who brings the ruins to life, the, most, the one who makes dead things live, couldn't come into your heart and make it full of life again. Can I tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell? You are a chosen people. God wants to be with you. He wants to come and make his home with you. And friends, Peter shows us the way. He says, just say yes. Come to him, the living stone, and you'll find that his burden is easy. His yoke is light, that you're not carrying stuff for yourself any longer, that Jesus himself comes and he makes his home with you. He is knocking at the door. Will you let him in? This is a journey. This is a pilgrimage. It's a process. But God himself is saying, I want to come home. I want to come be where you are.
Because it's only when I'm at home with you that you will be at home in the world. And so, friends, if there are things that are telling you that that, no, it's not for you. You, you know what you did or you, you know what happened to you. Can I just proclaim to you today the beautiful light into that darkness that he is calling you home? Let us pray together. Jesus, God, help us just to see these two equally urgent calls this morning. God, that you want to make your home with us. God, that you're longing to fill the corners of our lives with your beautiful light. God, that your sacrifice of your son on the cross was a rejection of all the things that would stand between us and you. God, that as you were alienated, God, as you were rejected, you did so so that you might be embraced by all the world, that you would be welcomed home. And so, God, would you help us to see that? And God, would you help us to see that there is an urgency to our lives now, that as we go into every corner of the world, as we go into our, our jobs, Lord, as we go into the spaces where we spend our time, God, that you have designated us as a priesthood, a people who declare the beauty of who you are to everyone who we encounter. God, would we see the urgency? Would we look at the world through your eyes and your lens, God? A lens that longs for prodigals to come home, that looks down the road and waits in hoping. So God, we thank you for these words from Peter. God, we thank you for the way they meet us. Lord, we ask that you would be with us in these moments as we reflect on your word. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.